0: join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll
1: Because there's access to everything on the internet, people are working more with references instead of taking their life experiences and digesting them and creating music that's maybe part of a communal culture, regional culture, things like that. And that's, I think, what was so interesting about music when we didn't have access to everything. Because a lot of stuff had to just kind of come from like the collective unconscious, you know? You couldn't refer to things so much.
2: Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure.
3: And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie
2: and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew the map.
3: I, I, I just, I, I still get very excited about doing uh, this. Coming on, on like either Zoom or Squadcast. Because it all feels so like new. Um, yeah, and,
1: yeah,
3: and I'm always saying to Loll, it's like the nearest we get to getting ready to go on stage. it is.
1: <laughs> it, it does have that energy to it. It's like, okay, here goes nothing.
3: <laughs> right. So, so to everybody who's listening, the our uh, mystery voice uh, that's not mine or Loll's is Nika, Zola Jesus, Welcome to Curious Creatures.
1: Thank you for having me. It's such an honor and a pleasure. <laughs>
3: formality is
2: over with (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) let's get to the hard stuff i
2: I was doing some due diligence nika with uh you know your your back catalog and your story and the one thing i I noticed that you you like to be in different places to to record or to make music uh you know you like to change your location because it seems Mm -hmm. like you've been in cities and then now you're in the the, the deepest darkest wood um that to me is something that I really identify with because you know with the with the cure we would go once we had enough money to go somewhere to record uh, we would get out of horrible old London and we would go and put ourselves like in the middle of the French countryside or or you know just in the middle of nowhere most of the time just so that we could concentrate because you uh, the thing with, I think, with being in the city or being in with something that's very super familiar is, is it becomes a cerebral exercise. It's not visceral and emotional. And your music sounds to me uh, very visceral and emotional. Is that is that a fair um, sort of synopsis, or am I going completely up the wrong tree?
1: No, absolutely, yeah. I don't know. I think as cre- writing music and making music is such a... Um... An all-encompassing insular process, you know. Whether you're doing it with people or not, you know, when you're in the studio, that's you're living and breathing a different air, a different environment. And if I feel like the actual space that I'm in when when being creative isn't conducive to the space of the music that I'm trying to create, it starts to feel like um, very discordant. Like there's a problem. I get distracted really easily. Tired but if I'm in an environment that really is conducive to allowing my creativity to flow um, and I'm inspired by the space or it, it soothes me in some way, then I feel more receptive to it. Um, Because I think the the space that you're in when making a record is just as much a part of the story because it's, it's where the record is being born and so much about music is about there's space and place to it. I think even though people feel like it's in a vacuum, it's, it's not. It's, it's it's a recording of a moment and a time, and um, and it's important to have that time be, be, um I don't know as again like as sort of inspiring as possible because it will find its way on the record.
3: With the creatures, uh, just Susie and myself, we we actually pushed. That to its limit, really. The first time we got the opportunity outside of London, because all of the recordings with the banshees would have been in those brown wooden studios that looked like the BBC and they had laboratory technicians milling around with white coats and almost. (laughs) Um and but for the creatures for the feast album, we literally got it's like playing blind man's buff with a map of the world. Mm -hmm. And we went I went. And it was South America. And so we started looking for studios and couldn't really find one. And we thought, well, Hawaii is near.
1: (laughs) Such an amazing place to make a record.
3: We went there. We had a few songs written, a few ideas. And it was the most amazing journey because we, we, we left on New Year's Eve from London. And when we arrived in Canada, the first stopover, it was still New Year's Eve and we'd already had a New Year's Eve celebration on Keeps the flight. going. <laughs> and then we left Canada, and by the time we got to Hawaii, it was still New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> I love
1: um, that. Uh,
3: we were a little worse for wear well by the time we got there, but I took uh, I took a ca- some tins of uh, cans of Heinz baked beans because I was a, quite new at being vegetarian, and I thought, they're not going to have these in America. Uh, uh <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then you found out that's where they were born. Well, I knew that. <laughs> I kind
3: of knew, but I wanted like you know, British baked beans with me okay. and a pair of drumsticks, some drumsticks and some lyrics. And really, the album was born in this studio, which was cut up in the jungle somewhere on, um, uh, let me see, it's on uh, Oahu. And we had the sound of gecko lizards. We went down the street in, into the village where we found some Hawaiian singers, there was no ukulele. Great, no. <laughs> I, it's such a a dear something dear to to my to me is the sense of occasion, the need to be to to go outside of your usual routine. Does that something mm-hmm. that you need? Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, also because I think you know, I, and I want to say that I really appreciate and respect that that decision that you made and. Um, this is a little bit of a divergence, but like I feel like um, so often because it's so easy to make music these days just with your computer at home that and it's inexpensive and it doesn't take other people. That's something that people just are doing, you know, and, and they're doing it more and more. But I think forgetting and neglecting that that um, so much of art and music is about responding to things and how you respond to it is what the art becomes. And that's something that I found I really needed more of in my life. Um, And so I've been working with people, different people and putting myself in different environments, musically and otherwise, because that's exactly like how I feel like that's how I grow as an artist and a musician, not only technically, but you know, inspirationally or whatever, creatively, you know, you've gotta be rubbing up against things in order to know what you're made of, in order to know what Mm. you're trying to say, you know? And so the fact that you would get on a plane, go to Hawaii and try to make a record using a Hawaiian state of mind, like, that's what makes that music so full of spirit and soul is because it is, you know, you're like, that's like a magical act of bringing in another influence and letting it change you and then going, how can I respond to this? And um, I feel like people don't do that that, that much anymore because we're so conditioned to just do everything with the same technology in the, in, in the same places that we're used to. And um, and I think that art is suffering because of it because people aren't allowed to take chances and put themselves in in spaces where they can really unravel you know
3: yeah, yeah. The, the record company was a little concerned about that one you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. well, it's, not good. it's
1: not good for that it's going to be probably uh, more it's probably uh, it'll, it'll be more exploratory and it was it was part
3: of um it was part of like the solo deal that you got signed into yeah. the contract you know the one where you could kind of say okay just let them go and do their thing and we had like two weeks though so they kind of figured we'd come back with a couple of tracks. But we came back with the album and we had the photographs taken under the banyan tree. We had right. some traditional Hawaiian costume on. We looked like we like in a castaway or something, some film I can't remember. <laughs> where. And we came back with the album uh, finished. And the strange yeah. th- link with Lol is that our the, the the other two people in the band at that point were Stephen Severin and Robert Smith. Who were right. back in back in London trying to write and make the album, which would become the Glove album, their, their solo project or, or yeah. Steve's solo project. And when we got back there, I think they were a bit shocked because we had a, like the album finished and mixed and the photographs.
2: <laughs> they Concentrated. Was, it, was, it was funny because you kept it completely under wraps because I, I went to, you know, like some of the Glove sessions and I was just sitting in there, you know, hanging out, doing what you do. And uh, nobody had a clue. Nobody had a clue where you were, you know.
3: is that weird? Which was good.
1: <laughs> I yeah. love that.
3: How could we do that? We, I mean,
2: we, we didn't try and keep
3: it. We we, th- we always thought we were secret, like a secret couple, right. which is a bit strange when you're in a band 24-7. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but we did. We came back and we had this cassette and we just thought, we went down to the studio and we said, well, if you want to have a listen? <clears throat> and it was quiet, you know. And this thing sounded like from some other, some other world it was, and we were quite shocked
2: as well. So uh, but that's good. You know, it's good. To, it's okay. good to take a risk. I mean, I was, I was listening to, uh, an interview with yourself, Nico, and and you were saying, well, yeah, you, you should take risks. Life has, you know, life is about risking things, you know, a lot of the time. And I, yeah, I agree with that. You know, I, uh, 26 years ago i threw everything in the in in the trash can and just moved to the other side of the world Yeah, i live in los angeles and i've been here for a really long time most people come to los angeles either to get discovered or destroyed you know one one of the two things but i didn't find that i found something completely different and um i found a lot of love and and it was really a good thing to do i was reading thing uh uh, Polly Harvey was was saying about you know every day she would like to go and record in a different place because every day she could look outside the window and you know I'm paraphrasing here but she would say uh, you know you have to look at the world in a new way every day because otherwise, you know, you're not you're not putting anything in. And that goes to your point about, you know, everybody recording in a laptop in a room by themselves, you know, there's no there's no and there's no influence there. When when me and Budgie started we were we were sort of on the cusp of 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 punk which was really you know especially in england was like a major change and and really it was like a revolution you know and uh that forced you to do things and and we were sort of you know the tail end of the 70s trying to figure out well can we be musicians can we be artists can we do something and and punk gave us this huge kick to do that and and uh That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, you had people and you could go to places and see people doing things, you know?
1: Yeah. The thing that I I feel like I've been noticing with myself and just observing music as it is now is that um, because there's access to everything on the internet, People are working more with references instead of taking their life experiences and digesting them and creating music that's maybe part of a communal culture, regional culture, things like that. And that's, I think, what was so interesting about music when we didn't have access to everything is a lot of stuff had to just kind of come from like the collective unconscious, you know? You couldn't refer to things so much. Like, and I mean, I don't know, like I just started making music you know, uh, I'm a millennial, so, you know, it's different, but I, you know, I had constant access to music from a very young a- age and it's so easy to just work off of references and go like, oh, this music, I like this. This has a cool vibe. I want to make something that sounds like the creatures. Or it sounds like the cure or whatever. And you're just kind mm-hmm. of like, yeah, but but they made that music from a very idiosyncratic personal space. And so if you're making music, that just sounds like that. You're just using their experiences and their sort of like, You know what I mean? Like it's a strange time to be a a musician.
2: Yeah, it's almost like that thing of curating. You know, I I, I find it so weird, you know, in the morning I pick my phone up and it's curated a bunch of pictures and photos and things that I should be involved in. And I'm like, No, 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 that's not that's not life. That's not really life, you know. And and I I wonder if the you know the the music industry as a whole is maybe even going that way, trying to curate everything taking it. A little bit of of something that worked once upon a time, and then you know, mm-hmm. extrapolate that out and make it make it bigger. Um, that homogenization of everything is is probably the death of art, you know, completely. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the music industry is. I mean, let's just say I'm in this for the music, not the industry. Because <laughs> right. at this point, right. it's not it's not something that, that I would encourage people to get into unless they're just like deeply passionate about expressing themselves through music or being a part of, you know, music in any way. Because at this point, yeah, the industry does not reward innovation. It would never let you go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks and record whatever, bring it back and put it out. Like, you know, and that's the thing that I loved about that post-punk era is when all of these different worlds were merging but they were still they still had their own voice yeah but still could be poppy but still could be like working against something you know there was so much more gradient to like music whereas now it has to fit into literally algorithmic boxes of like this is right. pop this is rock this is rap you know and it's like it doesn't work that way anymore so now music is just getting very it's it's very strange what's happening i think
3: <laughs> yeah I'm curious, Nika. So, when what 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 was the portal that you took? What what what, what how did you enter this
1: music? Growing up, my dad um, would listen to like Dead Kennedys and Oingo Boingo and stuff when he was weightlifting, and so I would. My mom <laughs> would put my brother and I into like the his basement like workout area and we'd be running around while he's like listening weights, listening to dead Kennedy's. And then, um, so then I, I, from a young age, I was really into just like punk music. And from there I got into post punk. And then from there I got into like noise and industrial and experimental stuff. Oh yeah. And then I was also, before that, I was studying opera for like 10 years. So actually my first ent- entrance into music was when I was six or seven, seven years old and I wanted to become an opera singer. So I studied opera like my entire childhood. Um, but then once I like really got into punk, I was like, oh man, I can just make stuff up and get away with it. Like I like <laughs> that way better. I don't want to yeah. learn stuff. Like, I want to make yeah. stuff up.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, trust, trust me, that was the that was the first um thought I had, you know, when I went to see like, I don't know, Buzz Cox or somebody. And I was thinking looking at it, I was going, I was looking at John, you know, playing the drums, and I was like, yeah i could do that i could do that Mm. i could do that you know it wasn't because you you forget you know like the end of the 70s especially yeah the end of the 70s was two things it was disco or this really overblown prog rock that you know we could never aspire to you know so yes um,
3: the prog rock with many guys who thought they wanted to be opera singers yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) the
1: technicians of music
3: I teach here in Berlin. I, there's a college music college, and um, one of the students uh, again, she was a trained opera singer, and then dissatisfied with the world, uh, the kind of uh, staid world of of the opera and what you're expected to do, but found it difficult to find their own voice. You know, in 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 if like in modern music in in, in the college. So um, I. Re- it, I could see. I sensed that when I watched one of your performances. The lit, uh, it's in Seattle. And it's like a glass windowed corner of. a...
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That
3: was- That's the radio station, right? Yeah. yeah, and you were resplendent in in, in red. It was yeah. like you were <laughs> stamping around there. I thought you were going to break out through the glass plate glass windows. Um, it was really intense. Um, and then I watched it right to the end, and the the, the, our, the host. Was just going. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's just amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: It was just a very weird environment to be performing in.
2: Sure. Yeah.
1: I was like a zoo animal.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely.
3: <laughs> which which added to the, the 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 ferocity of it really because it was so you were so exposed, and yet you were so able to. It seemed to me anyway. You were so able to find the place you needed to get to. Mm-hmm. Is that something that comes from the training as well? Do you think because your voice was very much a part of the vehicle?
1: Um, yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't learn a lot of good tips on performing. But <laughs> when I was studying opera, it was mostly just the the classical singing. Yeah. For that, I mean, I just find like being able to perform is is like. Uh, it's like a chance to let your id go wild. You know, I'm just kind of out there like unleashed and um, I really enjoy that space. And so I just try to find a space where I lose control while also being like, no, this is my moment to lose control in front of all of you. And I don't care if it's embarrassing. (laughs)
3: Like
1: I can't tell because I'm not in it. You're in it, you're watching it. (laughs) Right. <laughs>
3: that, that was what was beautiful to watch was the freedom that you gave yourself and I think there's one point where right there was the end where you kind of like walking out into the street and then decide oh no hang on if I go out there I won't be able to hear what's going on back in there yeah, so yeah. I to stay close. and but what, as soon as the performance finished you kind of it and it, this is the important point for me was like where there was a point where you were like in performance and everybody's going like yeah, and screaming. And then the next thing you're in with the audience, and you turn around and you look up, and you uh, then you connect in a different way. it's it's very it's very quick and very subtle. But you're smiling. You're smiling now. It's like <laughs> yeah. lovely smile. And he was like switch. It, and and I recognize this is from the place you go to to find the voice, to find the thing, the expression. But but you're not you were not stuck there. You were able to then come back quite quickly, and it and it felt very natural um, and not forced. And I, that was very powerful. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's probably because I can't hold the thing any much longer when I'm not performing. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> okay. we- I, I would consider that a weakness, but no. <laughs> well,
3: it's Thank kind of strange, of strange that some people, I suppose, do that. They have to. They have to build up to it, and then they they have it, and then they have to hold on yeah. to it afterwards in a, in a kind of unnatural way. Does it? Do you find? Um, I worked with you know a singer who was not trained and had to find their own voice it and how their voice changed through the years. And and I always felt that it was a, a real um, physical thing where especially some of the earlier songs to go back, mm. you know, say six years later yeah. to still be performing a song that was from a very dark place. Um, yeah. is, 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 is it... <laughs> Have you have you come across that yet where yeah. it's like demands of you?
1: Yeah. I mean, emotionally and technically. Uh, and also just the voice changes as one gets older and, you know, there's a myriad of circumstances that, you know, the voice is constantly, it's alive as well. And so it goes through its own changes. So there are songs that I wrote in the beginning of my career when my, um, I was singing like totally incorrectly, really. Like I was, Doing a lot of bad things with my voice, um, and then to hell uh, with technique, <laughs> right? That's what I. But that's where I was at. I was like, "Diamante Colas. Oh right. goodness! The end. Period. You know, so then I was just like, went off, but then I didn't realize how far I strayed from actually healthy vocal technique. And then I was like, "Oh yeah, Diamante probably like is understanding what she's doing. She's not just like feeling it or whatever." Oh, so at God. some point, I recalibrated. But then I recalibrated my voice and studied again and got my voice in, a, in better shape. But then I had to relearn how to sing my older songs because I just was approaching them so much differently. Um, in, in you know, since I'd gone through more training, that I was like, I don't know how to sing these anymore. It's not the, yeah, right. it doesn't come across the same, you know.
2: Back in the day when I first came out to America in like the very late seventies, early eighties, and I was touring around and we were a very small band, but we played kind of everywhere. And we would go into a town and we would find our people. We would find our tribe. You know, we'd go down to a local record store or we'd have flyers and stuff. And we go, We're playing at the college tonight, you know, you want to come and see us and that. And I still know people from that time, you know, almost like 40 years later. Yeah. we started because we felt like misfits we didn't fit in where we lived at all you know so we had to find the other people that didn't fit in you know for him it was up in in liverpool in erics and finding people <laughs> and for me it was like you know i went to school with like two guys who were so different and we decided okay we we, we fit together we're different we're good together so so we can do something do you see that do you do you, do you feel that or, and is it important to you
1: yeah, I mean, you your experience uh, sounds a lot like my experience growing up. Growing up in Wisconsin in the woods, you know, knowing that I'm interested in things that not everyone else understands. Like I remember I had a best friend, a childhood best friend, and I was like 13, and I was trying to show her Bikini Kill, and I started right. playing her Bikini Kill, and she's like, "Who are you?" <laughs> Whatever, and I'm just like okay, so I got to find people that are into this stuff because this isn't going to go away. (laughs) And then I found people that were also into it. But then, you know, growing up and feeling like an outcast and feeling very, like, um, introverted and isolated and, you know, being interested in a lot of things Mm. but not having anyone to share them with. Right. Making music is kind of like... um, it's kind of like reaching out the feelers into other, to find other people, you know, that, that you can identify with or have something in common with, because for me, like growing up, not having a lot of friends and then being able to make music and my music brings in people that have similar, that I've, you know, things in common with, we like the same stuff or we're interested in the same philosophy or whatever. Right. That right it's right. awesome. It's awesome. And that's, that's to me that that's what community is about. And that's what, music community is about because music is it's it's like it's something that that you can share with people but it also signifies something deeper you know music it holds a lot of emotion it holds a lot of history it holds a lot of communal catharsis you know and to be able to share that with people is amazing but you know you got to share with people that that you feel like you're that understand you and you understand them
2: well i think the thing is you know if if you it's like that old adage you know if if you build it they'll come if you play if you put it out there sooner or later you find your community you know they 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 find you you know that's 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 what my experience was you know we went all kinds of places around the world and we found that community and 40 years later they're still there you know yeah
1: that's that's hopeful for me because every day i'm like oh this is going to be the last year for me i'm a, <laughs> Or like they're gonna all go away they're gonna you know this is temporary having like anyone cares temporary
2: unfortunately i i feel or actually it's probably fortunately but you're doomed you know you're gonna have to do this until the day that you can't do it anymore so that's what i found that's what budgie <laughs> yeah. found you know we were like oh maybe we should do something else. no no it was
3: the the, the harder i tried you know it, it, it wouldn't let me go it, uh, it's different now it's on a different you know now I have a family, a young family and I, I seem to have lived life in it in like the wrong way around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it, in a way I have more time because I suppose of all the years I've been in music um, and living it every day uh, to the exclusion of everything else uh, being very selfish I suppose. Finding the gang, Mm. I was so familiar with how it worked. You expected to carry on working. You expect, okay, let's just go in and do what we do. But then the 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 world has moved in a different way. Um, For instance, when when dance music hit Europe and then eventually into America, it was suddenly we thought we had a record that everybody would. Well, we didn't know if anybody would like it, but certainly nobody wanted to give us any money for it yeah um and it was just weird we thought you know, maybe we should just go out and tour this but maybe there's nobody out there yeah and then we found the audience was still there people were still coming to the gigs yeah. the business side the industry was kind of drying up and yet the the people were were still there
1: yeah that's good to know yeah.
3: Yeah, there's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, lol. That was just amazing.
2: Uh, We really have to continue this conversation next week. Yep. And uh, so if you tune in next Tuesday on Curious Creatures, you'll hear the end of our conversation. Okay, so here we have a question, which you'll like. Uh, This is from Roland, and Roland says, First, it's an honor to ask such esteemed influences, I think he means us, uh, on the music I make as Violenti, as both bands were massive for me growing up. Well, it's very nice of you to say so, Roland. Simple question, really. Was there a point where you knew in your bones the work you were creating was special would influence entire scenes and shape music in the future, or was it much smaller mentally, as in, Well, we're just doing our thing and that's about it? Kind of philosophy. <laughs> Love you guys, Roland. I think Roland is in somewhere in uh, Canada. Okay, lovely, yeah. lovely place. Um, okay, so, well, of course, with that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That you ever do anything thinking, oh my goodness, this is on par with uh, you know the great philosophers of the 20th century. I don't think that's you know something that's going through your head. Um, I'm aware, looking back, and and as I say quite often, I'm humbled and flattered by the influence that we had on things. Um, I don't I don't think you can ever do anything and think well i'm going to influence a generation or i'm going to do this i'm going to do that i'm very grateful to the universe for having been allowed to be the conduit for some of those things and i i think that that has very little to do um with me making decisions about what i'm going to do but it's it Helps if you're able to be open enough to accept certain things. That sounds very mystical. And I kind of want it to sound mystical because that's how I feel about it, really. I don't think a lot of it comes from people. Yeah, you know, People go, oh, yes, I always knew we were going to be gigantic and everything was going to be great. Uh, I think that's all rubbish. You know, you can't know that. No. N- nobody knows Even that. when we sat there and it was the killer riffing, like, oh, she's the dog's bollocks. <laughs> yeah. And and that's really what it is. I mean, life has to be a mystery, right? So, uh, um, I don't think you can go through your life going, "Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do and how it's going to work out." You know? I
3: think there's a there's a sense of you you have to believe that it's the best you could you can do, and sometimes mm. you you do sense a, a, a moment when it's all fallen into place, and it's almost. In spite of you, you know, you 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 feel get this feeling that like this is really happening, either in a lie in a gig situation, but sometimes if you're really lucky, when you're in, you know, when the the, the recording process is happening, and you just go, God, it came, I, you know, everything you tried to do it came came together, and at the same time that everybody else was feeling the same thing, but those moments, they're rare. Um, it's usually a lot of, um, oh yeah, I can do better, you know, let's do that one again. Oh, you know, fuck God, who, who messed that take up? Um, because you were always trying to make a, a complete, you know, that's uh, the word, an interactive moment for prosperity. Mm. But you know, no, you could, you couldn't go in there going, I, I, I don't think it, it would be too conceited and arrogant to go in and think, Well, here's a
2: light. We're about to
3: make a great Uh, A life-changing moment for decades to come. Yeah. Um, No, uh, only with the tongue firmly planted in the cheek.
2: Yes, exactly. And um, now we have a a simple question. This is from Simon Thomas, who's probably from England, if I think about that. Out of all the tours you've done, champs, do you have a favorite and what was special about it? Thanks simon thomas that is a very nice simple question
3: yeah for us. that's a real okay i think it has to be phew special tour i i suppose it, it's just the first one that jumped to, in, into my mind because i if i started to mm. think about it i think oh yeah that was good and that one was a really special one and yeah uh, and i think yeah. i think i would say sadly it wasn't really filmed although i think i have seen some mm. footage. Uh, we did uh, a special production for a Peep Show, uh, which, which yeah. was where the single Peekaboo came from. Um, right. And it was a big transition point um, in, in where the band had, uh, uh, you know, we'd, we'd augmented ourselves to a five piece. So we had John Klein and Martin McCarrick in the band, Ch- guitar and cello and keyboards respectively. Right. And the album started to come together as a kind of a concept started to come as the songs were arriving, which was mm. very theatrical with the, the whole idea of peep show. And then there were other things that were like in like sort of strange, a ground ride type of feel. And, and it, it came mm. about in sound and it came about in uh, image within lyrics. And then it manifested itself in a stage presentation, which was like the biggest thing we'd ever tried to do with ramps, and mm. and it came with, with every night. There'd be because it was complex, more complex than we'd tried. Um, there'd always be the uh, the Spinal Tap moment, sure, when the Kabuki yeah. Drake dropped from the uh, the truss above the stage. That's where all the lights are hanging, and the it's some, the guys that would be sitting up there for the whole show letting these quite heavy drapes drop to the stage. what they didn't realize, or what the guitarist didn't realize, was he was standing underneath one of them at the time. Oh, my goodness. And so it really was like a magic act. Because one minute, there's a guitarist. (laughs) The next minute, there's a kabuki drop, which is quickly dragged off the stage, so nobody trips on it. But it's dragged off with the guitarist (laughs) wrapped up like in a toilet roll. Oh, my goodness. And suddenly like, so the guitarist is like a race from the mix. Suddenly so there's no guitar in the song, but there's no, no guitarist. Style. No guitarist on the stage either. Where'd he go? And, um, of course, he's, he's found. <laughs> How do you bring them back, you know? How do you re-enter when you've been unceremoniously dumped and dragged off the stage? It was one of the first tours I'd done as well, um, where I decided to change my lifestyle and be healthy. And I, so I was on the road and I wasn't drinking and I wasn't partying. I was trying to be, mm. you know, part of the, the whole touring mm. game. But I, I felt very much at the top of my game of playing and I, and I was enjoying the clarity mm. as well. Except it's pretty mm. lonely.
2: Well, yeah, if nobody else is doing it with you. No, yes. I, yeah.
3: I would be getting up in Santa Barbara and we had a gig that night, and I'd be up with the sunshine and there'd be a bicycle for rent, and I'd rent the bike and I'd phone around and nobody was awake, take the bike to soundcheck. I think Martin started to join me on that around that time on that tour. But um, I realized, yeah, yeah it was, um, I, I remember a lot about it because the, 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 there was. Like clarity, and uh, but mm-hmm. also, yeah, you can, remember, you can see why a lot of what happens on tour happens because it's repetitive and, and it's it, it can it can be a bit mind numbing, you know. But every every day starts yeah. to look the same, um, yeah. So you have to look for the differences. Uh, um, so to me, that one was a kind of pivotal moment. I, I'd experienced what it can be like.
2: There you go. There you go. I uh, I have two <clears throat> tours that I, I I enjoyed for different reasons. Uh, the first one was kind of like to do with the presentation, which was the Kiss yep. Me tour, and and we had a kabuki for that at the front of stage. And I always loved coming on the stage behind the kabuki curtain because that was the start of the show, and uh, we'd have images shine on yeah, the curtain in yeah. front projections. And then we'd start playing behind the curtain. We'd start playing the beginning of uh, The Kiss. And there's a whole big, long introduction where Robert's not singing. And so the audience, you know, after the first time we'd done it, people knew in the audience, oh, the band's there, they're playing, but they can't see us yeah. at all. They can hear us playing, can hear us playing, so the that- the the you know excitement is is a tease it's a tease and just the second that robert would come up to the mic and start singing the kabuki dropped and that was always my favorite moment of the whole day because everybody just go completely insane nuts at the front you know and it was very good feeling for you being on stage you know you had to sort of remember hey well i'm supposed to do something here as well so i can't just sit there and bask in the light wow isn't that great you know it was it was kind of very very dramatic, and we we're not sort of a band that was known for doing super dramatic things at that point. No, so it no. was it was a good
3: any any sp- any Spinal Tap moment on that particular. Thing?
2: Well, yes, uh, Mick Lachinsky, who was our um, production manager for years, uh, may he rest in peace. Um, he had to swing on the kabuki at one point because it wasn't coming down, so he he had to do the Tarzan bit and 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 sort of you know. Swing on it across the. <laughs> Was he yodeling at the time? Oh, 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 I don't. I mean, he he'd spent many years working for Pink Floyd, and especially when they were doing the the wall, and so he had some you know stories of of you know bits of yeah, wall falling on bricks. people and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, the big polystyrene bricks, as they were. So he kind of knew. And they used to catch fire and all kinds of things with the lights above them and things. So he knew some uh, some tricks. He had some tricks, obviously. Yeah. You never
3: use? Did you never use pyrotechnics
2: or anything like that? Like, oh yeah, we did. We did it's at the end of a tour one year in Irvine uh, Meadows, as it was called back then, yeah, in Los Angeles, yeah. And we had to pay for a rather large hole in the stage.
3: Oh dear! Yes. It was a bit. Oh, somebody overloaded the pyrotechnic display.
2: Yeah, Pyro Pete or whatever his name was, he he uh, he put a bit too much gunpowder in there and uh, yeah, blew 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 the the tour manager off stage, as I recall, Mm -hmm. and uh, a hole in the stage. They all they all lived to tell the tale. They all lived to tell the tale. So the other tour that I liked was probably early on, probably about the first time we came out and did a longish tour of the states, playing a lot of colleges. Because we weren't gigantic at that point, we had a little more leeway to sort of, you know, meander around the country, and it was interesting to us all, you know. And we weren't at that stage where we're like, you know, where's my caviar and canapes and you know, or whatever you. It was it was a bit more real. So I think you know that was very enjoyable as a young man to look around the world a bit and uh, so i enjoyed that and also hmm. thinking about that i enjoyed the first big tour we did of australia we were we did like 23 shows in a, in a month you know you, 23 shows in australia you've played everywhere you know because there isn't 23 cities no. you know to play and uh, we ended up on the west coast in perth and had to wait for um uh, a plane back to England and they didn't go very often, you know, maybe once a week or twice a week. And so we were yeah. stuck, you know, on the beach in Perth on the edge of the Indian ocean and just, you know, just very young, early twenties, uh, just marvelling at how good luck of being able to travel around the world, play our music to a appreciative audience and then have this little mini vacation at the end before we we came home and i'd always remember that and it was it was really a nice feeling so that you know i've I've got three tours there that i enjoy. in
3: many ways that you you pay your dues don't you 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 if you you choose you have to opt in to that if you like that lifestyle because it's it's not very um person back home friendly no, you know, it's no. not no, not no, not, no. Good marriage, not good for the marriage, not good for the the family left at home. None yeah. of us had those commitments at that time. Not 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 many, anyway. Maybe right. some of the crew, yeah. Um, yeah. and but, but as even listening to somebody from ten years, twenty years ago, I mean, it's still the same thing. You know, what's the best advice you can give to a young band starting off? It's like play live it's it's plain yeah. live you can do all of the you know zoom concerts and things but it's still the, the the connection you know in the
2: same room or in the same field well that's how you transmit the thing to people you know it's like dharma transmission you know? it's back and forth isn't it it goes backwards and forwards Yeah, yeah. and then people carry that
3: experience and that's where you build a, a, a community, if you like, a connection, I suppose. And I suppose you and I have been fortunate in, you know, we, uh, we've done it on different levels and did it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan
2: Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital Marketing, Margie Taylor Art and Logo Design, Justin Thomas K Music Production, Jack Knife Lee
3: Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at
2: www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Curious Creatures
3: To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at Double Elvis on Instagram or at Doubleelvis on Twitter.
2: Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.